Can you please welcome the writer, director and cinematographer, Mr. Sean Ellis. Um, I'm going to start things off, Sean, if that's okay. And then you, I want to, I want to find out about, um, you know, you're the author now of this story in terms of, of, of where you've taken this historical event. Um, a huge responsibility, but for you, a real, a real emotional journey you've been on with this, and it's something you've been wanting to do for a while. Yeah, right? a long time, since 2001. And I first saw a documentary about the, uh, about the story of Operation Amphipoid, and I thought uh, it was an incredible story, and not one that I'd heard of before. So I started researching it, and then it led me all the way to here with you. <laughs> <laughs> what did that research involve? It involved, first of all, kind of um, a little bit of internet, and then you suddenly realise how limiting that is. Mm -hmm. It's kind of amazing. And, um, and then you literally have to do the footwork. So I went to Prague, and I went to the uh, Ministry of Defence and the War Museum, and I looked through all the archives and the and sort of documentation that they've got surrounding the mission, which is a vast amount of stuff, mm. even all the way down to what the seven men were wearing in the church. So you can actually touch their clothing. It's quite amazing. Wow. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think it was about the story that touched you, that, that, that lasted and stayed with you? I, I think it was just the emotional journey and, and the weight of that mission that was, that was put upon those men. And that, I think, what, what really struck me. And it was an emotional kind of striking in that respect. And I thought I, I, as an audience member, would like to know what that would have been like. Mm. You know, what would it have been like to go on that mission with them? So there's been a, there's been a couple of, well, quite a few films made about this uh, before. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a film, uh, 1943, uh, Hangman Also Die, Fritz Lang. There's a Attentat, which was a Czech movie in 65, and Operation Daybreak in 75. But all of them never really captured what I felt was the emotional pull of, of, of the operation and, and what those men were given and what, what, they, what all of them had to do. It's, it's the, the character study of these, these, these two men in particular is, is, is fascinating and, and the, the kind of twist of their, their characteristics almost in terms of when they're put under pressure is, is incredible. And was that really important to you to, to give the story and to give those characters an opportunity to develop and to, to show the personalities really? Yeah, I mean, you're, uh, you know, you're dealing with two, two aspects, really. You're dealing with the historical uh, events, which you can't really change. Well, you can, but, you know, you'll get sort of pulled up for it if you do. Or you, uh, or you and then you've got the sort of um, film structure side of it, where you're, you're sort of um, making a piece of entertainment at the same time. So uh, you've got two leads that both have the same goal, and so they have to be very different in some respects in order to uh, achieve that goal. Otherwise, it's two people doing the same thing for the same thing. <laughs> so it was very important to try and get some kind of difference between the two of them and, and figure out what their sort of Achilles heels were. And, and it's nice. I, I like the idea that you know, a man's been sent on a mission to kill somebody, and he suffers from panic attacks. And actually, you, know, you figure out in the first five minutes that he's probably not the man for the job. Uh, but as many things happened in the war, you know, a lot of people were just you know, thrust into those situations. And then you've got Gabchik, which is so hell-bent on doing the mission uh, that he's sort of blindsided by the one thing he didn't expect to happen, which was actually to become emotional about, about it. So there's this nice kind of crossover that I, you know, it was very enjoyable to play with um, Killian and Jamie. Yeah, I mean, 
Killian Jane, but the, the cast, the, the whole cast, and even you know, uh, Bill, Bill Milner for me, the young actor who really stands out, and that particular scene, you know, where he's, where he's playing his, his violin as well. Which I believe he learned to play he did. quite well as well for the for the role. Was was it an easy film to cast? I think any film is kind of um, difficult in some respects because you're just um, you're 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 doing a jigsaw puzzle. Mm. You know, and you're fitting the pieces in, and sometimes they just don't fit, and you go, oh, that doesn't fit. And the film absolutely changes completely on 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 your casting choices. You know, and I remember there were certain casting choices that now I can't even imagine what the film would have been like if it were, if we'd gone that way. So, uh, my mum used to say, "What's for you won't pass you." Mine too. Mums, they're the best, Mums aren't they? Great, they're aren't the they? best. Thanks, mum. <laughs> um, being the the cinematographer as well as the writer and director on it, do you have a do you have another set of eyes on set, so to speak? Because you're so immersed in it, I imagine, you know, ha having those three hats on. So, you know, you're, because it was all hand, all handheld. Mm. Do, do you have an, is there someone who's your, I don't know, your eyes in the back of your head? No, because it doesn't really feel like I'm wearing three hats. Like when you imagine, when you say, oh yeah, you've got three hats, it's like, it feels like you'd have to take one off to do the other job, mm -hmm. you know? And, it, and, and I think uh, for me, it's very, it's a, it's a very organic process and a very organic way of making film. And it's actually, for me, very similar to my background as a stills photographer, because I used to take pictures, I used to light my own pictures, and I used to have my subjects, and I would sort of talk to my subject and say, you know, okay, that's great, and, and I would move the camera and find the angle, and then I would shoot, and then maybe we'd have a little bit of discussion, maybe try this. And in a weird way, it's exactly the same thing, because you're working with your actors, you've got your script, and you're doing your lighting, because you know roughly what you want, and then basically you've got the camera, and you're talking to them, and you're running lines, and you're shooting it, and, and as you're shooting, you're kind of adjusting and doing sort of <laughs> stuff, and then you say, okay, try that. So for me, it feels very organic. Yeah. Probably the least producer hat I've got is the, is, is the producer hat. That's the least probably, because that's, that's when I have producers go, fucking hurry up. <laughs> <laughs> Five o'clock, you've got to finish. <laughs> when did you make the decision on, on, on how it would be shot in terms of the, the, you know, being handheld and why was that decision you made? Oh, that was pretty early on, really, because I look at period dramas now and they're shot on digital, and especially now digital's kind of gone up to 4K. It looks so clean mm. um, that, for me, it doesn't feel real. It feels almost like I'm watching a sort of... Um, one of those demos in a TV shop, you know, just, I'm like, <laughs> wow. And it, I can't, I don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't soak me in the period. So um, I kind of used old memory triggers that I love for movies that I remember from the past. Um, and I, was a, I watched a lot of Secret Army when I, when I was preparing for this. And, um, and I loved the sort of um, film grain um, and, I, and I love the sort of old, sort of washed out, sort of tobacco colorization. And it kind of made me feel about the, the sort of old movies that I used to watch. But then we sort of approached it in a slightly more modern uh, way with handheld cameras and, and really trying to put the audience in the, in the shoes of, of the characters and, 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 the, and you go with them on, on the mission. That last crescendo, that incredible thing at the end, I don't know what to call it, that thing at the end. Um, you know, in terms of you, you shot chronologically because you wanted the, you used the, was it, am I right in thinking there was a combination of, of real buildings that still exist that are there, but you also rebuilt stuff within a soundstage. And so you did it chronologically so that the, the, the walls would be, you know, kind of the gunfire would, would follow through us. You went through that kind of succession. Yeah, you've got, um, the, the real St. Cyril and Methodius church is still there. And you, so you can go there. 
and we did try and talk to them about shooting inside the church, <laughs> which was fun. Um, and then obviously we were like, this is never going to happen. So um, uh, they gave us the plans for the church, and we rebuilt the interior, an exact replica on, on Barrandoff Studios. Um, so all the interior stuff was on a soundstage, um, and it was a huge, huge build. Um, and, um, and was lovely because we even built the ceiling. So I remember Seamus McGarvey, the DP, came down. And he was shooting a commercial. And he said, I said, oh, come to the set. And he came in and he went, oh, you bastard, you get a ceiling piece. <laughs> and he was like, normally I get a blue screen from about 11 feet. Um, but, uh, so we were joking about having a set that you could actually look 360 degrees. Um, and yeah, I mean, we shot the action sequences in chronological order because obviously the, um, the church was being destroyed as we went, so we couldn't go back. Um, so we had to do all the sort of non-destroyed stuff at the beginning and then work our way through it. Yeah. What's the prep for, for a, a scene like that? Uh, the build was 13 weeks. Um, I spent about four weeks in a one-sixth version of it. My production designer built a one-sixth version of the church right next to the real big church as it was being built yeah and um i went in there with like one sixth action men figures and uh because it's all to scale and you can set up a stills camera and you can shoot the action sequences with a stills camera and and that way it gave us a fantastic uh, accurate rep representation of what our frame was going to be and what the light was going to do so we were lighting this model the same as we were going to light the big um set um, and then we were able to give these frames to our, um, to our uh, production design and our effects people, and they could see how much of the background we were seeing, and they were able to put squibs in the wall as they were building so that everything was kind of very much worked out. And it's pretty, the, other, the other really interesting thing about the church is that if you go and visit the real church and walk along it, you can see where all the grenades went off because there's still like soup bowls in the tiles of where the, where the grenades just exploded. And, and then you've got the Gestapo report where they found everybody, how they found everybody, and the, and the autopsy report. So, and, and the autopsy report shows how they died. So those three things, you can piece together how that sequence played out. And it's amazing to just literally go through the church with those reports and say, okay, a polka died here. It's like a map. Yeah, you were sort of like a detective of history. It was kind of amazing. I've got to quickly mention as well the, the score, um, Robin Foster again on it. And I just thought it was incredibly powerful the way that you kind of muted everything else. You know, there was, there was no sort of actual, actuality sound. It was, it was a really, why, why did you choose to do it that way? Um, it was written in the script um, that Jan's sort of death was actually sort of, if you don't know the story, then I guess Jan's death is a bit of a shock um, and a bit like when we cut to um, Josef, you know, his reaction of knowing that his, his friend has gone. And Josef's death is a bit more of a release. You know, it's, it's not, it's a bit more of a sort of, you know, and it's tough because it's, you know, you're trying, to, you're trying to get finance on this kind of ending, and they're like, wait, everybody dies? And you're like, yeah. and there's no Americans in it? Like, no. So, yeah, it was tough. It was a tough sell. Um, but uh, the thing is, in the script, that release of, of Joseph um, was written to a piece of music. And, uh, and I spoke to Robin Foster, the, the composer, about this, and I said, I'd, I'd love to have that music before we shot because um, I want to I feel its power um, before we shoot. And uh, Robin's brilliant, and I think he went through two or three cues, and I think it was the third or fourth one he sent me, and it just made 
the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And, and, and I called him and I said, that's the one. And I said, and I can't listen to it anymore because I don't want it to lose any more power. And even when the editor, Richard Mettler, like cut that sequence to that piece of music at the end, it pretty much stayed as it was. And, uh, and I was very happy with that last sequence because it was pretty much how I imagined it and then just decided that I wasn't ever going to watch it again while we were editing because I didn't want to get into that point where you kind of lose... Because uh, you can do this with music. You, you live with it for a long time, and then like, you go, oh, I'm really bored of it now, I want to change it. And then you go... So I just yeah. I didn't watch it, and, and it had the power for me, so I left it. And so I used to, we used to watch... When we were watching the edit of the film, we used to get to the ending of the crypt, and then we used to stop, and then carry, you know, do our notes from... Go back and do our notes from there. Yeah. How is it watching it with an audience? You watched some of the films? I sneaked in at the back, and, yeah, there was a few people sort of... <laughs> I, I, I wanted to go and tell you it was all right, but then you'd, <laughs> you'd probably think, oh, you, well, I would be lying, really, wouldn't I? <laughs> they all die. <laughs> it's okay, they all die in the end. Um, who would like to ask a, a question? Has anyone got a question? Um, I had a strong sense of death is hanging over you all. People you hardly know, you become intensely involved with really quickly. So the characters developed themselves, you know, in a satisfactory fashion. So I'm curious, do you know the backstories of your two protagonists, the two main characters? I do. And, um, you know, I think you could probably make 11 or 12 movies uh, about the history of Anthropoid and everything that happened. And, you know, they were... They fought for the French Foreign Legion and they were evacuated from France and they were stationed here and then they were picked by the, um, hand-picked by the, um, ex uh, the, the Czechoslovakian government in exile for a special mission, uh, which was to assassinate Heydrich, as, which was one of the missions that was, you know, there was a, a good 50 or so missions that they did of flying these uh, Czech soldiers back into uh, Prague on various different exercises and missions of sort of re-establishing communication was one of them because uh, that was to do with Paul Thummel and Agent 54, all the, all the uh, Wehrmacht um, information coming from the German spy uh, that he was giving it to the Czech resistance and London was getting it through the Czech resistance. So when their crystals went down, their sort of information with, from Agent 54 stopped. So there's, there's an enormous amount of backstory and it's kind of like you yeah, just have to make a choice what it, what it is that you present in a two-hour film. And I like the idea of hitting the ground running and you not know who they were and you not uh, know where they are or what they're doing. And, and that way, as the people around them slowly find out, you do as an audience. And that sort of saves that kind of very sort of expositional kind of beginning that it could have been if we were with them in the beginning in England, being trained and being given the mission. Have you had trouble with the title? in marketing in other parts of the world? Because uh, I would Germany, have thought lots of people enough. don't know the connection. My yeah. generation would. Right. No, I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, I often hear it, you know, oh, it sounds like a science fiction film, and you go, okay. But then I think if you've seen the film, then it, does, it doesn't, it's one of those things that uh, I like to go to cinemas and learn something and come out a different person to as I went in. So I, I, I kind of got the feeling that, if you went in and you and you went and you came out, the word anthropoid would have such a completely different meaning from 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 when you went in. The only pressure we had actually was from Germany, um, and they they wanted it to be called Operation Anthropoid. Thanks very much. That was very tense. <laughs> um, can I ask you uh, about your co-writing process with Tony Fruin? What um, point did he come on? Uh, me and me and Tony have been uh, talking about this 
pretty much since I saw the documentary, and we were both very much interested in it. And um, Tony did like the first draft, which was like the heavy lift, and and, and he said to me, um, "Let me do the first draft, and and then you can see what it is that you've got." And it was a, a story like from A to B to Z. I mean, it literally was the whole whole thing that I just sort of talked about, and the script was. 650 pages and it took me two months to read it and, 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 and I was it took me another two or three months just to like digest it and I was like and I, I I was a bit like down on it at that point I just didn't really know what part of the story to tell until I sort of got that old writer's adage which is you know hit the ground running and I thought that's where we start the film and the natural end is in the church so if we start the film you know, in, in at that point, that feels like the that feels like it's a doable. And at that point, then I took that draft and I started working to get it down to 120 pages. Tony was more like he did the sort of the so story really did the, beats, the, tem the template, as it were. Yeah, it was like the story beats. There wasn't that. There was no dialogue. It was just like he was okay. done in script form. <laughs> so. Um, and you didn't do any back and forth then. Once you took it over, you took yes, it over. he would then read all my drafts. And he would like come back to me and have ideas about like maybe try this or that I'm not sure about that. And so at that point, he sort of you know he worked uh, sort of edited a lot of my stuff in that sense. And, uh, Thanks very much. Thanks. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. That was an excellent film. Really enjoyed it. Um, so you produced it, co-wrote it, directed it, shot it. Do you edit it as well? Or no. I make sandwiches. <laughs> That. I like that, but um, yeah, uh, no, don't edit. Uh, I can't. Never learn, or no, I, I I did it once. It was a really big mistake, um, and it's it's uh, it really is a it, a, a it is such a a beautiful thing to sit with an editor and watch something that you're utterly depressed about uh, come alive. Because <laughs> uh, at that point, when you've got that material and you bring it back, and you're just like. I'm finished. This is what do we do with it, you know? Um, and then there's that point where you go for that really painful stage, and suddenly you start to see things fizz and come alive, and and the scenes start to you know start to work. But apart from that, you're just like it's it. You've just gone and fetched a load of like ingredients. Really, it's what it is. And especially when you're looking at rushes, you're like uh, it's heartbreaking sometimes. I've heard that from a couple of directors that, especially when they're when they're not just directing, when they have other, you know, they have other roles in the film, that, that it is, they're so immersed in it, they, they almost like just have to remove themselves for it a bit before they can then step into that next stage of putting it together. Yeah. Yeah, editing is just, it's, it's, oh, you drink a lot, you, <laughs> you're like, oh my God, you know, it's just, I don't know, it's, it's, it really is the mirror almost that you, you that, that you look into after the roughest night ever, <laughs> and you're like, oh dear. So, but yeah, I mean, it's you know, slowly it starts to come together, and then towards the end of it, you know, you start. You, then you get moments like your ego takes over, and you sort of go, oh, it's actually really good, you know. And then, and then, and the editors will be like, yeah, no, so we're still working, and you're like, yeah, right, right. So, so you sort of have these waves of sort of, you know, you're going through these waves of sort of emotion when you're when you're editing. But yeah, I mean, you're you're very immersed into it, and you're very, um, you know, uh, you're very close to it. So sometimes it can be very hard to cut stuff that you like, but. Um, 
you've got to be brutal. And I don't, I, I, try, and, I try and be brutal. Thank you. Thank you. Please give Sean a huge round of applause. Thank you very much.